The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're talking about how the accidentally dead can provide data for the living, hearing from two experts about the science of roadkill. Stay tuned. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, a science writer with Science News and Society for Science and the Public. I'm here with Dr. Sarah Perkins, an ecologist at Cardiff University in Wales. She studies how animals spread infection through their social networks. She also runs the fabulously named Project Splatter, a citizen science project that asks people to send in their squishy sightings for science. Welcome, Sarah. Hi. So can you start by just telling me really quick, what is Project Splatter about? Sure. So Project Splatter is first and foremost a citizen science project. So that means it relies on members of the public, anybody reporting data to us, and the data they report to us is wildlife roadkill. So we like to think of the splatter name as a little bit of an acronym for social media platform for estimating roadkill. But it's also a catchy name that people remember, and hopefully then that encourages people to report to us. So why did you choose to focus on having scientists send in roadkill as opposed to live wildlife sightings? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Well, we first got into this through an undergraduate research project. And I was talking with this undergraduate and saying, hey, you know, how many animals do you think are killed on the roads? And we sat there together and we thought, is it, is it thousands? Is it tens of thousands? Is it millions? And, and then digging around in the literature, we realized there wasn't really an answer. And we thought there's potentially a, a real conservation issue here. So he launched into producing Project Splatter and it really took off. And we thought, well, we can get some really great data from this in terms of how many animals killed are killed on the road. What is it that we need to do to perhaps reduce that and which species are being affected? Okay, so... What did he develop when he developed Project Splatter? So he developed the online platform. So he went on Twitter and went on a a Twitter fest, getting people involved, drumming up a load of interest and starting to get people to report to us basically a location and the species name of what they'd seen killed on the roads. And it really snowballed because I think it resonated with the public because none of us like to see an animal killed on the road, right? It's quite upsetting. And people thought by actually reporting that animal to us, it was turning that rather miserable sighting into something good because we were going to use it for a scientific purpose. Okay, so say someone is in um, Wales, for example, mm-hmm. and finds roadkill. How, how does it work? What do they do? So because most of us have smartphones these days, what they would do, provided they weren't driving, of course, so let's say they're a passenger in a car, they would go onto Twitter and they would find us at Project Splatter and they would just simply tweet to us what they've seen and where. So some people provide a very crude description. It can be something like just north of the Red Lion pub on the A47, or they can actually give us a grid reference, or sometimes they use maps and drop a pin and send us the image. Uh, They can report to us on Facebook. We've also got a website where people can actually Actually fill in the details afterwards. So some people actually note down on a piece of paper what they're seeing, 
and then go onto the website and upload it that way. So there's multiple platforms that people can use to report to us. So a lot of people, I mean, well, first off, when you see roadkill, sometimes it's a little, um, little, little mangled, you know? Um, and of course, these are citizen scientists. How do you confirm what species someone says they saw? We don't. So we don't do any verification of what people are saying we've seen. Um, some people do send in photographs, but, but actually we don't encourage that because it can be a little bit dangerous to stop on the road. So some species are very obvious. So uh, our badger, for example, you know, has lovely white stripes down its face. So it's very, very obvious species. Um, so some of our more common, obvious, easy to recognize species are reported to us. So it is a question I get asked a lot. Oh, do people really know what they're looking at? So we ran a side project and we ran um, it kind of it was a Twitter and Facebook launch survey where we had 30 images of whole animals and 30 images of half animals, i.e. representing that difficult to identify squished animal. And we asked people, what are they? So we just did a quiz. And actually, the majority of our splatter spotters were really good, really, really good at their ID. So we, we're quite confident that their identification skills are quite good. So you do rely on citizen scientists, you know, regular people to report this data. What are the pros and cons of using citizen scientists? Yeah, I, I think there's more pros than there are cons. I think the pros are, of course, we get fantastic coverage across the UK, something we just couldn't do as, as a group of academics. So that's brilliant. And it also gets people really thinking about wildlife. You know, what are they seeing on the roads? Why are they seeing so many? And then people engage with us in terms of scientific questions as well. They start to ask us things. They interact with us over Twitter and Facebook. And, and I think that can only be a good thing. I suppose one of the cons that often gets mentioned with citizen science is, is it reliable? It's that old chestnut. Do people know what they're looking at? Uh, you also have observer bias and geographical bias because we, we're not controlling or standardizing where people are collecting data. So how many people work on it on the other end? You've got citizen scientists reporting N. Um, they report in their, you know, grid or their, you know, two miles past the three horse pub right. sighting of something. And um, what happens on the other end? On the other end, my army of fantastic undergraduate students and research assistants then translate that report into a dot on the map using GIS um, and then produce our kind of distribution maps of where we're seeing the roadkill. So there's a whole load of people working hard to make sure that data is, is put on the map. And then we like to feed it back. So we like to then publish the odd map on Twitter and Facebook and say, hey, look, this is what your data is, is doing. Here's where all the animals are at the moment. Is all of the data in the end going to be open and available for people to look at? Yeah, I, I often get requests for uh, data of a specific species and I always send it out. So the polecat data just went out recently to a group. Somebody's interested in where all the deer are. So I'm very happy for it to be used elsewhere. After all, it's collected publicly. It should be available publicly. And does anyone fund the project right now? Interesting question. <laughs> Funding, I think, is very hard to get for citizen science. Um, so we have had some funds from the University's Federation for Animal Welfare. So they funded a student. So within Cardiff University, we have small funds for students to come and do summer experience with me. But ultimately, this is really run on a very, very small budget. And it's, it works because I have that army of undergraduates. 
This is Science for the People. I'm here with Sarah Perkins talking about using roadkill for the sake of science. So, Sarah, how many sightings have you had since the project started? Gosh, a lot. So we seem to have the same amount reported to us every year. So it's it's quite a um, consistent reporting. But we're up at around 20,000 reports at the moment. So it's a lot. That's a lot of dead stuff. It is a lot of dead stuff. But you know what? I think it's the tip of the iceberg. So we've got 2,000 or so followers, people reporting to us all the time. That's just a fraction of the population in the UK just looking at a snapshot of the roads. So the actual impact, I think when we scale it up, is huge. It could be millions of animals. So what year did the project start? Started in 2013. So we've been going for a couple of years. So it started early 2013 and really reached its peak that summer. And we've been doing very well ever since. And it seems to be, you know, pretty popular. 20,000 sightings. That's that's a lot. Um, why do you yeah. think people like telling you about the dead things that they spot? Well, I, I think we make it very easy to report. I think there's a trade-off in citizen science. If you make it very complicated and you ask a lot of the individual, people get disinterested. And so we just want somebody to take maybe 10 seconds to report to us. Super easy. So then we do the hard work on our end by actually translating that into a data point. And I think also it's it's our wildlife heritage. Nobody likes to see these animals killed on the road. So hey, let me report and try and turn something bad into something good. So 20,000 spottings, how many species have you been able to collect? So we've had about 160 species reported to us, which is pretty substantial. So are there any that are especially common? Do they vary by season? Yeah, they, they do vary by season. So Actually, animals during their breeding season, what we've seen, really have a hard time. So our, our foxes, the red fox, um, that has an absolutely terrible time during its breeding season. But even more upsetting, really, is when those fox cubs are born and they disperse, very, very large numbers get killed on the road. So in June of every year, I have this horrible thing to look forward to where I get fox cub reported. Oh, another fox cub, another fox cub. So the, that seasonality we can pick up. And it, and I know it's very sad. It's awful. Well, one thing that, that maybe is a good thing from that is, is when we there's, get the badgers reported to us, we have really, really strong badger groups in the UK, very dedicated in badger conservation and welfare. And when they see a badger reported during the breeding season, they will go to where that roadkill is and check to see if it's a lactating female. If it is, they then try and find the cubs and rescue those cubs. So you have these groups going out to actually check dead badgers, but in some cases you are working with groups to collect roadkill. Um, What are you looking for when people go out for collection? So the collection of roadkill really just happens with us with otters, so our, our Eurasian otter. And that's a very, very long-term project that's been happening at Cardiff University. And I work closely with that group. And the leader of that is Liz Chadwick. And Dr. Chadwick there has been using otters as a sentinel for contaminants in the environment. 
So the actual roadkill research from those bodies is incredibly useful for us to say, okay, what, what contaminants have we got in the environment? We've also been monitoring parasites in the otters to see where the spread of the parasites is across the UK. And there's been some really great research from that. And you also ran a recent survey uh, called Dead or Alive. Uh, can you tell yes. me a little bit about that? Dead or Alive was incredibly good fun. I've been wanting to run Dead or Alive for a very long time, and I had a great student, Rita, who took that idea forward. And she wanted to know, are members of the public engaging with our wildlife dead? Are you seeing it on the roads? Or are we having some lovely interaction where we're seeing a fox running through the countryside or we're watching badgers at their badger set? And I'm afraid to say the results were quite grim. So the majority of the, the public are actually interacting with our wildlife dead. So only 5% of the population in the UK, of human population, have ever seen a badger only alive. The rest of us have seen them all dead on the roads. Oh, on the other hand, I have to say I've never seen a badger at all. So <laughs> they're, they're absolutely lovely creatures and they're, they're quite easy to spot. You know, they're, they're easy to watch. If you know where a badger set is, you can go with your local badger group and they'll take you out badger watching. It's fantastic. They love the animals. Oh, that sounds great. So you've had around 20,000 sightings. Um, right. What exactly does the data get used for? You mentioned you published maps and you send data out. Um, so yeah. where is that going? Yeah, so a lot of it is just going out on Twitter and Facebook as feedback to the citizen science scientists, which I think is really important. But we're developing it into research themes now as well. It takes quite a long time to get data, which I think is really useful. So we need a long time series to start to look at trends. And now we've got a substantial amount of data. We've just launched a research project looking at the effect of lighting on wildlife roadkill. So we're using satellite imagery to match up where there's very bright lighting. What kind of incidents of wildlife roadkill do we get and which species? So that's something when we get the answer to that, we may be able to provide some kind of mitigation. We may be able to change that lighting regime on the roads to reduce the wildlife roadkill. Have you found anything so far? We're just starting on that project, so maybe I'll have to come back in six months, a year time and talk about that again. <laughs> that sounds good. So Great. you also share the data with uh, conservation groups. Right. Um, who, who are these groups? So it's anybody who wants it, really. So the local wildlife trusts are sometimes interested. The badger groups are always interested to know what's in their area. Um, we have certain groups who are into otter conservation and they'll want to know what's being reported in their area. So it goes out to anybody and everybody who, who puts in a request. To and has it had any impact so far? I haven't had that fed back to me, but I hope so. Um, we, we did send off uh, information to a group who were interested in otter roadkill, who were using it as um, a means to be able to say they needed to put up some otter crossing warning signs on the road. And, and I, I think they're taking that forward really successfully. So it hasn't yet happened, but fingers crossed it will happen soon. Um, yeah, so to elaborate on that a little bit, you use geographical data to find hotspots right. um, where lots of animals become roadkill. What kind of actions can people take to reduce mortality rate in that area? Yes, it's a good question. So there, there's two things we can do, really. So either the animal changes its behavior or we change our driving behavior. 
So to change our driving behaviour, we might consider slowing down. That That's good for all safety. Um, we really should be observing what the speed limits are on a given road. And in terms of changing the animal's behaviour, what we can do is put in mitigation. So we can have green bridges or tunnels, or we can put up warning signs um, as well that will reduce our speed in those areas. So so it's, there's really a, a two-tiered approach we can take to reducing the wildlife roadkill. But it's not just on the roads, right? I remember you mentioned something to me once about hedgehogs. Can you talk a little bit about the hedgehog issue? Sure. Well, hedgehogs are really lovely. They, they're a species that we have in our backyard in the UK. We're, we're all really used to seeing them. And they've undergone this incredible decline. So in the 1950s, just after the Second World War, we had about 30 million, that's three zero million hedgehogs. That was about one per person back then in the UK. And in 1995, it was estimated that that declined down to about 1.5 million. So huge decline. And now, and actually through a wildlife roadkill survey that the People's Trust for Endangered Species did, they've noted that the hedgehogs have undergone even further decline. So sadly, we have about 500 hedgehogs reported to us every year. They're, they're a really frequently reported species. And if we scale that up, our estimate is we have tens of thousands of hedgehogs killed on the roads. Why, a, why are these hedgehogs becoming roadkill at such high rates? Well, I think they've always been subject to roadkill. I mean, their defense mechanism perhaps isn't the cleverest. So if, I, I guess they're like a, a mini porcupine, okay? They're quite small and, and they're rather spiky for those who haven't seen them. But their defense mechanism is they roll into a ball. So as this fast moving car comes towards them, they curl into a ball and unfortunately the next thing you get is splatter. That does not sound very effective. <laughs> it's not very effective at all. But I have a little theory as to why they may maybe be seen on our roads more frequently now. And like I said, they're, they're often found in our backyard. And we've changed the way our backyards are in, in the last 50 years. So we all put up these fences, you know, my space, nobody else's. And it means that the hedgehogs can't move from my neighbor's garden to mine really successfully. So they would want to do that as a natural home range area, right? Feed in my neighbor's backyard, feed in mine, feed in the neighbor over the way. But because we've all got these high fences, they can't get around. So I think they may be venturing out of the backyard and onto the road to find a new habitat. And of course, once they're on the road, they're vulnerable to being splattered. You're listening to Science for the People. We're talking with Sarah Perkins about the Citizen Science Roadkill Project, Project Splatter. So the project has only been running for a couple of years. Um, how long do you hope to continue? Yeah, I'd really like to continue this for some time. I, I think that the long-term data, when we get data year after year, is when it becomes super valuable because we can collect data across the UK, something we couldn't otherwise do just as a small army of academics. And we can start to pick up long-term trends and it really, really becomes valuable in the long term. So I'd like to keep it going. And as long as people are happy to report, I'm really happy to keep going. And what do you hope the future of the project is going to be? What would you like to accomplish in the end? I'd, I'd love to go even more based on kind of crowd sharing, if you like. 
I, I'd like the data to be, all be available for anybody to map, anybody to look at, people to feed into, have it a real citizen science owned research project. I, I'd love to see that in the future. And what do you hope people will in the end kind of do with the data? See, I, I think that's the, the great thing about involving anybody and everybody is, is they will do all kinds of things that you don't expect. So already, I, I think the, the volunteer input we've had to the project has been fantastic. We had a volunteer design our logo, a volunteer produce our app, and people really want to be involved. And, and I, I think they do all kinds of weird and wonderful things with the data. So yeah, it could be anything. So it sounds like you've had a great citizen science experience. What kind of things have you learned about working with citizens? That they're brilliant people. <laughs> they're, they're really great. And they, they put so much effort into the project it, it's really really superb i was surprised how much people wanted to be involved in reporting but also they're interested to map they want to see the results they really want to be engaged and i think one of the, the fun things for me as well was was almost the the hidden culture of roadkill that appeared so i've had artists contact me who make roadkill art so they use badger skins to make um weird and wacky sculptures I've, I've had roadkill chefs contact me. Um, I've had a lovely guy called Pat who does roadkill stories. And he was interested in using some of the data to incorporate into his storytelling. And, you know, that, that side is, is a world I didn't know existed. And it's, it's very interesting to engage with those people. That is very morbidly fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> it is, isn't it? <laughs> So now we know there are roadkill chefs and yeah. roadkill artists. Um, why should scientists like yourself use roadkill? What can we get from it scientifically? Yes. Yeah, I, I think um, long-term data, we can look at distribution and trends of animals. Are the populations going up? Are they going down? Uh, can we map invasive species? You know, it's a very effective way to see where invasive species are within a particular area. And then, of course, our research with the otters, where we collect the carcass, we can do all kinds of really focused research on uh, contaminants in the environment and, and what animals are picking up, which could translate to what humans are maybe picking up. So there's, I think there's a Real, there's a real spread of information we can get from wildlife roadkill. So you mentioned some invasive species. What are some of the oddest species that people have reported? My all-time favourite has to be the wallaby that was found just southwest of London. Now, a wallaby we would normally expect to find in Australia, not southwest of London. And somebody reported that. And sure enough, there is a small population of wallaby that probably escaped from a wildlife park and have established a little population there. And one of them, unfortunately, ended up as a roadkill. Oh, my personal preference, though, looking at your list is for the ones that you describe as unidentified furry objects. Oh, our UFOs. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so they're the ones where people are just going past something squished and they can't make what it, out what it is. So, of course, you can still look to see if animals are in that area being squished. You just don't know what. So have any of the sightings ever really surprised you? Yeah. So actually, when we did Dead or Alive, we asked people to make comments just generally about Roadkill. Tell us anything. And we had some really fun comments back from that. But one of the reports was, and I'll quote it. 
I did once see a black panther cross the A947 at night in front of my car. That was a surprising one. A panther. A black panther, indeed. Is that possible? Well, we do get reports in the UK of these beasts. Beasts of Bodmin Moor is, is a famous one. And people think they are large cats that were released into the wild in the 70s when they changed the Dangerous Cats Act. So you had to register your large cat. And in the 70s, it was a little bit trendy to own a black panther or a tiger. Or Anyway, when they changed this and said you have to register your animal and pay some money, people thought, oh, crikey, I'm not so sure about that. I think I'll let it go on Bodmin Moor and, and wish it all the best. And ever since then, reports have trickled in of large cats living in the UK. That's amazing. Isn't it? So you're in the UK. Are you, is Project Splatter only in the UK right now? Are you thinking of expanding? It is only in the UK. There are other projects around the globe. So actually in the US, there's, there's a great group based out of UC Davis that have been running the California uh, Wildlife um, Roadkill Reporting System there for a very long time. It's a very long running project. And there's a website that the person who is running that has set up. So Fraser Schilling has set up a website called globalroadkill.net. And that gives you information of all the wildlife roadkill recording systems across the world. Wow. So if any of our listeners wanted to participate um, or in that project or in Project Splatter, what should they do? I think the first thing to do would, would go and have a look at globalroadkill.net, see the project that's in your area, click on their website, and all the info will be there on how to get involved. Is there anything that you think might be a common misconception around Project Splatter or around your work? I think perhaps sometimes people get a little bit upset that we're actually working on wildlife roadkill. They think it might be in poor taste. And my argument there is actually the data we're gathering is incredibly important for conservation of species. And with the otter work, we're, we're getting incredible data on what pollutants are in the environment. So it really is making something good of something bad. Okay, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Um, we've linked to Sarah Perkins and to Project Splatter's website and Twitter feed at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes, where you can listen to past episodes, subscribe to the show, or leave a review. We'll be back after the break to talk to Kyle Elliott, an ecologist who needs dead hawks for their livers. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. We're back with Science for the People. I'm your host, Bethany Brookshire, a writer with Science News and Society for Science in the Public. Next up, I'm speaking with Dr. Kyle Elliott, an ecologist at McGill University. He studies top predators, such as birds of prey, and what they can tell us about environmental change. Good to have you, Kyle. Hi, Bethany. How are you? I'm doing great. And yourself? Excellent. Great. So can you tell me... How did you get into looking at predators? Well, uh, predators are 
the species which are at the top of the food chain, of course. So many of the chemicals which are of interest are of interest because they're biomagnifying through the food chain. That's to say that they become more and more concentrated the further you go up the food chain. So top predators are good organisms to study uh, these chemicals in because they have such high levels, so it makes it easier to detect. And also they integrate a signal across space and time. Um, so for instance, whereas a, um, a sparrow might only tell you what's happening in your backyard or over a very small area, a Cooper's hawk or a peregrine falcon will range over a larger area. So it uh, integrates that signal across space and then also across time. Um, so uh, they're very effective monitors for that because of that. Okay, so can you really quick tell me exactly when you talk about biomagnification of a chemical, what are you really talking about there? Well, biomagnification is a principle that um, certain chemicals will increase in concentration as you go up the food chain. So they tend to be chemicals which are concentrated in lipids and fat, and they have properties that uh, mean that they are retained very well within the fat. And therefore, they're very hard to excrete, and they stay in the body, and therefore, they accumulate within the body, and therefore, they accumulate from one level to the next level. And so when a Cooper's hawk feeds on a whole bunch of sparrows, um, the uh, levels of these chemicals will remain within the uh, the Cooper's hawk. So whereas most of the sparrow gets um, eaten and digested and passes through, the chemicals remain. So there are consequently very high levels of these compounds in the hawk. Okay. So um, what is generally the goal of your research program by looking at these predators? Well, it's to find something about the environment. So I study uh, predators in urban environments, in marine environments, in Arctic environments. And the idea is to see what we can determine about the environment um, by using these top predators as canaries in the coal mine, so to speak. Um, so to use them to tell us something about it can be about uh, prey stocks, or about fish stocks, or it can be something about chemicals uh, in the environment. Okay. And, you know, they're, Cooper's hawks, they're, you know, very large and they can biomagnify these chemicals, but they're also kind of relatively rare. So what is the advantage of looking at a rarer, larger bird over, say, a large number of smaller prey animals? Well, the... The main advantage is that um, because they're covering a larger area, they're telling us something about um, what's happening in, the, in a larger area. So although it might be more work to go out and sample the Cooper's hawk, um, it's less work in the laboratory because we have to analyze fewer samples. Um, perhaps one way of thinking about it is, uh, so I do a lot of work on um, seabirds as well, which are also very good indicators of what's happening in the environment. So you can spend millions of dollars putting a having a ship go out at sea and sample the environment and uh, take water samples as it goes. Or you can go to a seabird colony and you can get the seabirds to do all the work for you. It's the same type of principle with the hawks. I mean, the hawks are a little bit more difficult to work with, but they're still kind of covering a larger area. So instead of having to sample thousands of uh, sparrows, um, you could sample just a few hawks. Okay. So how did you get interested just kind of in this field in general, what made you want to study the environment in this way? Well, um, you know, I, my, uh, I guess the easiest way to answer that is my father is a 
a toxicologist, so he has a strong chemistry background. And uh, I come from a very strong ecological background, so I've just always been somebody who really enjoyed the outdoors. I actually started off my career as a physicist, and I did my undergraduate degree in physics and realized that being a physicist involved programming at a computer in a large warehouse. Um, you know, I worked at a telecommunications company. I worked at um, a particle accelerator, and it was all the same thing. It was just being in a large black box with uh, machines that went all day and uh, you know, talking to them, programming with them. And I realized pretty quickly that that's not what I wanted to do. So I switched fields and I went into ecology and much, you know, I think that was a very good choice. And then I got interested in the chemical side of things because I was working with my father who was a uh, toxicologist, a chemist. Okay. Um, well, so this is science for the people. And I'm here with Kyle Elliott talking about what birds of prey can tell us about the environments they live in. Okay, so we've been dancing around the subject. Let's get to the dead things. So you recently published a paper in The Science of the Total Environment looking at urban birds of prey. So you usually study animals in Arctic and marine environments. Why were you particularly interested in looking at urban birds? Well, urban birds are poorly studied. So we know actually a fair bit about chemical compounds and environmental chemistry in marine and aquatic environments. And in some ways are a little easier to study there because of the flow of chemicals through liquid environments. Uh, but terrestrial environments have been studied much less. And in particular, urban environments, um, I think as ecologists, we like to go out and study pristine environments, go to the Arctic or the Antarctic or to rainforests. But there is this ecosystem that's living all around us um, in urban environments, and they're very important uh, environments. Uh, and they're also relatively polluted environments. <laughs> they sure are. Yeah, so I mean, uh, particularly these uh, brominated compounds are uh, disposed of in landfills. And therefore, we thought that perhaps there'd be high levels of uh, these compounds in some of the landfills. So you just talked about brominated compounds. Um, you were especially interested in, um, I was looking at DDT, PBDEs, and PCBs. And these sound like alphabet soup to me. What are they? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So these are... Uh, those are acronyms for different uh, compounds. So PCBs would be polychlorinated biphenyls, and uh, PBDs would be polybrominated diphenyl ethers. Um, so they are chemicals, uh, and what they have in common is that they all have a uh, you know benzene ring. So they have a ring structure, and they're all organohalogens, which means that they either have a chlorine in them or a bromine. If you can remember back to uh, your high school, um, bromine is just above chlorine in the periodic table. Um, so they're chemicals which act in a very similar way in the environment. And in particular, there are these chemicals which biomagnify through the food chain. So it's these uh, organohalogene compounds which um, have are very lipophilic, so they, they live in the lipids. They, they, they're very tightly um, attracted to lipids, and therefore they biomagnify through the food chain, and this is what causes um, problems to, uh, to the environment, um, causes problems for these top predators. And also they're all known to be toxic to, uh, to top predators, um, so especially birds of prey. 
Okay. Um, but what did we use them for? Why did we make them? Well, that's a really good question. Uh, so they're used for all different things. So DDT was used primarily for as a pesticide. I mean, someone no, someone won the Nobel Prize for making DDT. It seems kind of strange now, but um, it was used as a pesticide and still is used to control malaria in certain locations. It's a very effective pesticide, at least for a few years until uh the insects become resistant to the pesticide. Uh, PCBs were used in industrial transformers. They're used in a whole, a wide range of industrial uses. And brominated uh, diphenyl ethers were used as uh, flame retardants. Yeah, they were used uh, as flame retardants in furniture. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, flame retardants in all types of things, but uh, certainly in anything that any household good which could be potentially burn or anything in the uh, you know, industrial application that could potentially burn was often covered in um, Romani uh, BDEs. So most of these chemicals are no longer in favor? That's that right. right. So all, yes, all of these compounds um, that we studied in that paper have now been uh, phased out. Why is that? Uh, well, because they uh, have these same properties, so they're they're biomagnifying, so they're occurring in the environment, and also they're known to be toxic. So uh, many of them are endocrine disruptors. They look like the hormones which occur in our body, which occur in, in the bodies of wildlife. So, uh, for instance, the these brominated flame retardants have almost identical structure to uh, thyroid hormones, um, and because they look an awful lot like uh, hormones, they can disrupt those pathways to the um, uh, this, so cells in our bodies can recognize them as hormones. They can, you know, they can have difficulty distinguishing them. And this can lead to, um, you know, disruption in these hormone pathways, leading to disrupted immunity, disrupted metabolism, um, and uh, potentially reduced reproductive success for these uh, top predators. Wow. So, and you were looking at urban birds of prey. You were especially interested in the area around Vancouver. Uh, what did Vancouver have to offer for you here? Um, yeah, well, we thought that Vancouver would be a really kind of pristine city. It's, you know, at least in, by Canadian standards, it's thought of as being kind of a really progressive green city. And so we thought that it would be a place where there wasn't too much of this, uh, you know, BDEs and these PCBs and these DDE. Um, you know, also there, there hadn't been a lot of agriculture in the past around Vancouver compared to some other large cities. Um, but we basically used it as a kind of a test case. It's the third largest city in Vancouver, third largest city in Canada. And we thought it would be just an you know, interesting place to look at this. Okay. So in order to look at how these chemicals might have biomagnified up the food chain, you had to get some birds of prey. Um, what species did you end up using? We used Cooper's hawks and peregrine falcons because they both feed on birds, so they have a similar niche. And we were able to get a sufficient number of carcasses. All of the carcasses were brought in by people to rehabilitators, and they were those individuals which weren't able to uh, survive or that um, you know were brought in dead to uh, provincial agencies. Yeah, it, uh, it, I noted in your paper it said they are dead of trauma injury. Um, so how, how did you come across them? I think, I think your dad helped you out a little bit. Yeah. So there's a network of, uh, rehabilitators and, uh, provincial government agencies across British Columbia, which, um, collect these 
you know, if you find a dead bird on the street, you can bring these in. Or if you find a sick or injured bird on the street, you can bring them into these places. And my dad was closely connected with these. He'd been working on birds of prey for many years. And um, so we were able to collaborate and be able to find some uh, some of these carcasses and test them. Okay, so some of these birds were actually roadkill accidents. Um, how does a bird, especially a bird of prey, end up being roadkill? Uh, well, that, that's a good question. So the uh, you know these birds of prey are living in our backyards. Many people would, uh, you know, for the most part. People don't even realize that they have Cooper's hawks nesting there. So they're very secretive birds. Um, likewise, peregrine falcons, very fast-moving birds, um, you know, not easily noticed. But they are uh, they were living all around us. And so sure enough, some of them get hit by cars. Some of them uh, fly into windows and die. Some of them, um, you know, will just you know, fly into skyscrapers. And, um, you know, in particular, when they fix on a prey, so if they... Uh, you have a cooper's hawk or a peregrine falcon that uh, sees a, a sparrow that is trying to feed on or a, a robin that is trying to feed on. It'll fixate onto that bird. And, um, you know, if there's a car around, it just won't pay attention and then be hit by the car. Oh, yeah. Sad. <laughs> yeah. So but it was very important to you to use animals that were already dead. Why did you need your animals to be dead? Well, we want to look at the. Uh, liver. So many of these compounds accumulate in the liver because the liver is what detoxifies the body and therefore there are high levels in the liver. And so we needed the individuals to be dead in order to be able to look at the liver and we didn't want to go out and kill the, uh, the birds ourselves. Um, so we decided to uh, work with, um, rehabilitators to work with birds which are already, um, dead. And how many birds did you end up with? Uh, we had uh, close to 30 individuals. Uh, we had more Cooper's hawks than we had peregrine falcons. Um, but uh, I, if I recall, we had 27 Cooper's hawks and nine peregrine falcons, but I'd have to check up on that. Oh, no problem. So yeah. you tested for the pollutants that you were looking for using chromatography. What is chromatography? Uh, chromatography is a widely used uh, technique to look at uh, chemical compounds, and it involves using a column that has um, uh, that separates out different uh, compounds based on the structure. So it basically slows down the compound. So the uh, what we call it, we they elute off, so they come off at different times, and then that's um, based on the amount of time that it takes the compound to go through the uh, column we can figure out whether or not it's a large column, a large compound or a small compound or a charged compound or an uncharged compound. And basically each compound has slightly different amount of time in which it goes through the, uh, the chromatograph. And then at the other end, we can uh, use um, uh, a detector to detect the levels. And um, then we, we uh, look at the area under each of those peaks, and that gives us an estimate of the uh, concentration of those compounds. Now, the problem comes when you have two compounds which are very similar in their properties, and therefore they come off at the same time. So um, a lot of the specialization in this field is trying to figure out ways in which we can separate those uh, compounds which are um, very similar. Okay, so you had a whole bunch of dead hawks, and you had their livers, and you ran their livers through a chromatography machine to look at the pollutants. Can you tell me what you ended up finding? Yeah. Uh, 
So we found um, very high levels of uh, brominated diphenyl ethers. So this was the actually you know one of our hawks was the had the highest level ever recorded. It was 196 parts per million, and to give you an idea, these levels are usually recorded in parts per billion. Um, so this is you know a thousand times higher than what is typical. Wow. And yeah, it was really really high. So we were we were shocked by that. And uh, in fact, the, the, there was a second bird that we found, which was the second most polluted bird um, on record for these brominated diphenyl ethers. So we had really, really high levels of brominated diphenyl ethers in the urban habitat, so in and around Vancouver. And then we had higher levels of uh, the um, uh, DDE uh, in the agricultural areas, so the Okanagan Valley, where there'd been intensive use in the past. Um, but we were basically the upshot of the paper was that we were just very shocked at the, the high levels of the uh, BDEs. So the Cooper's hawk that had the extremely high levels of the BDEs, um, why was you said that it was very surprising. Why do you think that happened? Well, I think that this was one of the first studies in an urban terrestrial environment, and we hadn't appreciated exactly how high the levels were in wildlife living in and around us. So there have been studies on humans, and there have been studies on aquatic organisms, but uh, we think that the uh, bees are getting into the uh, urban food chain, so getting into everything that's living in and around us, uh, be it raccoons or starlings or um domestic animals potentially, but through dust. And then uh, it gets into, you know, the food chain that way as well. And then it bioaccumulates up the food chain. And um, so those animals living in very, very uh, urban environments are, you know, being surrounded by, um, you know, garbage and landfills. And, you know, that's probably where it's all coming from. And, um, we were able to also show that starlings, which are a favorite prey of the Cooper's hawks, the levels were really high for those starlings nesting just near the landfill. So many of, you know, as we, we mentioned before, some, many of the, um, uses for brominate diphenyl ethers, these brominate flame retardants, or, um, in household furniture. So there's still a lot in furniture because it takes many years for people to go and throw out their furniture. So it all accumulates at the landfill and therefore, those animals living at the landfill get very high levels, and then the predators, which feed on those animals, think at even higher levels. So you mentioned that you know you had the the highest and the second highest amount of BDEs ever recorded in two of your Cooper's hawks, um, but all of your animals that you were looking at had died of trauma. Um, what is the effect of these chemicals on the health of these birds? Were they were they sick? Was there you know was there any problem with them? Well, we focused on the individuals which had trauma because we didn't want to bias our sample for ones which were um, already sick. So we thought that trauma um, were individuals which had just died from accidents. Um, however, it's possible that the BDs themselves are affecting the brain in some way that would make them more susceptible to uh, trauma. What we do know is that the levels that we found were about a hundred times higher than the levels which were associated in the laboratory with chain, you know, disrupted thyroid hormone status. So, um, probably these individuals were having, um, difficulty controlling their metabolism. Um, and, uh, it was about 10 times higher than the level which disrupts immunity in the lab. So they were probably having compromised immune systems and altered thyroid, um, status. 
Wow. So you also noticed that you saw some ecological differences in your study where it looked like male and female Cooper's hawks were actually feeding at different trophic levels. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, this was uh, um, this was interesting because uh, females have, are, have reversed size dimorphism in both Cooper's hawks and uh, peregrine falcons. In fact, most raptors, the females are larger than the males, which is unusual. Uh, in most animals, the males are larger than the females. And it's thought that one reason why that might occur is because um, you have a raptor which, you know, is stuck at the nest when it has offspring. And so uh, it can only forage within a certain radius of the nest, right? It can't move. And like a mammal, which has, um, you know, live offspring, it, you know, it can't move. It's stuck um within uh, feeding within a certain area around the nest and therefore by splitting up um, having small males focused on small uh, smaller prey and females focusing on larger prey um, you're able to have uh, two individuals um, survive in the same location right and uh, and thrive and so we were able to see a certain suggestion that this might be happening and that there were differences in the contaminant signature of the males and the females and also in the isotope signature of the males and the females. You're listening to Science for the People, and we're talking with Kyle Elliott about what dead hawks can tell us about the pollution in our environments. Okay, so Kyle, I'll admit, hawks with livers full of chemicals sounds very depressing. <laughs> <laughs> but you Indeed. actually interpreted the findings as being kind of hopeful. Why is that? So one of the things which we have noticed is that there's actually a decline in um, levels of brominated diphenyl ethers uh, in aquatic birds around Vancouver. And so we we think that there that um, you know levels are likely to decline in the future. And I think one way in which is, this is really positive is it shows the, you know, that we can have a positive impact on the environment. So, um, you know, if there is a problem, if brominated diphenyl ethers or any other compound becomes very prevalent in the environment is harming other wildlife, uh, we as humans are willing to make that type of change, that shift in our, um, habits in order to, uh, ban a compound like brominated diphenyl ethers. And, um, and we're seeing the impact of that decline now and not in the hawks yet. Um, but in some of the aquatic species around Vancouver. So levels are declining. Well, that's good news. So most of these chemicals aren't on the market anymore. A bunch of them have been banned. Um, how long do you think they're going to end up persisting in birds of prey? Based on what happened with DDT and PCBs, the levels will decline relatively rapidly. And again, we're seeing that already in the aquatic uh, species. But then there'll be some levels which persist for a very long time in the future. So I think we'll be able to detect them in Cooper's hawks for well over a century. But by that point, the levels will be well below what um, you know is, is harming the birds. So they'll be very, very low levels. So... Um, yeah, I think that that's a really positive message. Of course, the negative message is that, yes, these compounds will take a very long time to, to disappear. So what does this mean for us? I mean, is there anything that we can do about birds of prey hanging out near landfills and eating smaller birds full of chemicals? I think as a society, we've already uh, done what we can. I guess if we have, if you have old furniture, then think about, you know, what's 
happens at the end of life for that furniture and uh, make sure that it's disposed of appropriately uh, because there are these compounds, you know, living, you know, compounds existing in and among all your uh, you know, old stuff and be careful what you do with it when you throw it out. So will you be carrying on this project in the future? Or are you going to look at Birds of Prey another, you know, five, 10 years down the road? I certainly hope to. There was a master's student at Simon Fraser University who uh, continued this uh, this project and uh, he started doing some radio uh, telemetry and uh, to find out exactly where the Cooper's Hawks were going and trying to find out where um, they might be obtaining these uh, these compounds. Okay, well, I hope that we will see those compounds decline in the future. <laughs> I, I think definitely we will. Are there any misconceptions that you think people might have about this study that it would be really important to avoid? Just to emphasize that these brominated compounds are declining, that this isn't just a scare story that they're you know, increasing. I think it's a good news story that we're um, they were really high levels. I mean, the Cooper's Hawk, which we had the really high levels, was almost a decade ago now, and that levels are declining again. So it's not a, you know, there's these horrible compounds out there and we should ban them as well. You know, we as a society are able to do something if we put our minds to it. So I also wanted to ask a couple of questions about your other work. This was actually something of a side project for you. You mostly work on uh, top predators in the Arctic and marine animals. Can you tell me a little bit about those projects? I work primarily with seabirds in the Arctic. I work on kittiwakes in Alaska and I work on uh, thick-billed murres in the Canadian Arctic. So these are colonial species, and they're at the southern end of their range in the Arctic. So they're Arctic species, and where I'm studying them, you know, is the, the extreme southern edge of their range. So they're very sensitive to climate change because it's here, of course, that they're being impacted by warmer temperatures. So I'm using them partly as an indicator of environmental change, so climate change. Um, we're also studying uh, the same chemical compounds. You know, it can be determined, can be seen at much lower levels in the Arctic. But it's a sobering thought to think of uh, chemical, which has gone all the way from Vancouver or New York or um, Los Angeles and made its way all the way up to the Arctic. Um, but mostly, I focus on the uh, you know climate change component at the moment. So and, uh, let me get this straight: you study climate change, and in your side time, you study pollutants. You're a really chipper guy. yeah right well you know there's always a you know a a positive side to all of this um and i truly believe that uh you know humans as a society we we are this is the anthropocene we're impacting the biogeochemical cycles of the world we're you know impacting everything that's going on but we also as a species are able to you know change our activities and have a positive impact on the on the globe so I noticed that you were also doing a little bit of research on birds involving drones. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that as well. So we were using drones to uh, census these colonial seabirds. And up in the Arctic, it's very hard to census many of these seabird colonies. So there will be uh, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of birds nesting on a cliff face. And you can either photograph them from a little boat in a very remote location, and several biologists haven't come back from those expeditions. So we're trying to find a safer, uh, more accurate way of censusing birds. And uh, the useful part of the drone is that it can not only get you the perspective from the boat, but it can also go up and down and get a perspective on bird po- birds, which might be kind of hiding behind 
a, a cliff face or behind a boulder and uh, really give us a, a better idea of how many birds are there and to do it more safely, which is really what uh, um, appeals to me because I'm the person there on the uh, flow edge um, with the helicopter counting the, uh, the birds. So if we can do this, you know, more safely, then that's good news for me. Okay. So I actually have read a couple of studies that have noted that you actually can't get too close to birds with drones. Um, have, how far away do you, do you stay? I know that sometimes drones bother wild birds. So the birds which I was working on, I was really surprised because they're very sensitive to a number of different uh, disturbances, planes, boats, um, you know, and if an eagle flies by. But when we flew the drone past, um, the first flight, they would, uh, you, we had a few of the non-breeders, so the birds which don't have eggs or chicks would fly off. But all the birds with eggs and chicks, uh, at, you know, they stayed with their eggs and, you know, at their nest. And the um, birds which had flown down, by the time we flew the drone past a third or fourth time, they'd all just adjust to it and they would fly back up and, uh, you know, be back where they were before. Um, so the MERS, the birds which I, I was particularly interested in counting, uh, they weren't impacted too badly by the uh, the drones. On the other hand, the uh, gulls, um, which were nesting nearby, were much more flighty, and they really didn't like the drone. <laughs> so you also monitor individuals. How do you do that? Is that also counting, or is there specific individual monitoring? Oh, yeah. No, I, I'm very fortunate that I've worked on a, these two study sites, which are being developed by you know, started by people before me, um, so I can work on a bird which is, uh, you know, as, as old as I am. And, uh, and so both of these locations at Coates Island and Middleton Island, uh, there are populations which uh, have been individually banded for many, many years. And, uh, so we know the age of each individual, we know the sex of each individual, we know its reproductive history, we know all of its previous partners, and we can put all that together to get a better idea of the, um, why a bird is doing exactly what it is that it's doing. Um, so we, you know, we have that kind of individual history um, to go alongside with the uh, reproductive success and the survival. So what I'm trying to understand is trying to uh, how we can scale up from the level of the individual and the individual's behavior all the way up to level of the population. So kind of going back to climate change, I mean, there's two ways in which animals can cope with climate change. There is um, adaptation. So there's the... Uh, you know, the, the ones that don't act appropriately will, um, die and therefore the next generation, the gene pool will, you know, there'll be a different gene pool and so they'll be adapting that way. But that's not really going to work for these long-lived species like, uh, murders and kittiwakes, um, because the generation time is just so long. Um, so I'm trying to understand how much behavioral flexibility there are for individual, uh, seabirds, um, to cope with changes in the environment. Um, how does someone go band a seabird? Oh, well, so for the kittiwakes, it's really easy because my uh, colleague Scott Hatch has created a, the kittiwake laboratory, which is in a abandoned radar tower. So, um, uh, the military left in 1963 and they left behind this huge radar tower, which he has refitted with windows right the way around this tower with a one way glass. And, uh, there's a kittiwake nesting behind each glass and each glass window. And so we just put a hook out, we grab the bird, and we can put a band on it. But of course, most birds have already been banded by this point, so the chicks you can just pick up and put a band on. The murres are a little bit more difficult because they're nesting on a cliff. So uh, you can catch some adults from the top of the cliff, and the rest we uh, uh, rappel down on, on ropes and uh, you know, uh, grab up all the chicks we can from a particular ledge, put bands on them, and then let them back. You know, go back on the ledge. 
your job is much cooler than mine. <laughs> <laughs> well, I work in the Arctic. I, I imagine that it's, uh, you know, it, it is very cool. Oh, you did not just give me that pun. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. I'm a big fan of puns. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, great. Well, Kyle, thank you so much. It was fantastic to have you on the show. We've linked to Kyle Elliott's research at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes, where you can listen to past episodes, subscribe to the show, or leave a review. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivelon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten. Coordination and additional behind-the-scenes support comes from the Enthusiastic Skeptic Network team. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. In return, we regularly post special patron-only extra content and after-show casual conversations with guests. This show is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders and me, Desiree Shell. Thank you.